According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs 17 once again. Proverbs 17. Really looking at verse 5 and then getting ready to move on to verse 6. Verse 5 says, He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. And uh, obviously there's a surface level we can look at this with. There's bigger issues involved as well. I tried last week to introduce this and show some of the bigger issues of what's happening. Yes, it's bad enough that you're taunting the poor, but it's so much more than that because ultimately you're not insulting the poor, you're insulting God. You're mocking God, the one who sovereignly controls the circumstances. God has his reasons for why that person is poor. And uh, we don't want to be uh, in defiance of what God is accomplishing. All right, so essentially that's it. We'll try to wrap that up today and then we'll talk about grandchildren. And we'll talk about growing old in, uh, in verse 6. Before we get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's faithfulness to bless our study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth, uh, asking for your blessings upon our time together. I thank you for brothers and sisters that make the Word of God a priority, that take the time in the middle of a week to come out like this, to, to study and to learn. We just thank you for your faithfulness, Father. Bless our study, equip us, open our eyes. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so I haven't I've got to skip ahead through the slides, get us caught up where we are. Point two, we have the contrast of a servant with a son, and that was from verse two. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. Then point three, from verse three, God's testing processes are akin to smelting operations. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold. But the Lord tests hearts, and that's a hotter fire than silver or gold have to deal with. That's hotter than the furnace is the testing that God puts us through when He tests our heart. Such testing is both personal and corporate, particularly in, uh, in different ways as, as a local church gets tested in the smelting process there. Praying for that. All right. What a person says reflects what's in their heart. That's a given. Also, what a person listens to reflects what's in their heart. And what we see here too, uh, an evil in verse 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. And just as there are sins of the tongue, I think uh, there are sins of the ear that uh, I'm going to see if I can get a book written and collect some royalties or something with sins of the ear uh, that is choosing to listen to the, uh, the things you should not be listening to uh, and uh, choosing to listen. Really, it's a mental attitude sin. When you want to hear the gossip, when you want to hear the wickedness, when you want to hear the dishonorable communication. And uh, what you listen to reflects a heart that is not tuned to the Word of God, that you want to have your ears tickled. So the itchy ear circumstance is, uh, is not good. Some points under that. 
And then point five, where we were last week and ran out of time, many of our personal sins have bigger issues underlying them. Many of our personal sins have bigger issues underlying them, such as here, mocking God, defying His purpose. Those would be among the bigger issues, all right? Because God is not mocked, and we will reap what we sow. And there is a uh, a very clear warning that's given in Galatians 6, 7. We will reap what we sow. And that means if we're mocking the poor, we're going to reap that. We're reaping the wind. We're sowing the wind. We're going to reap the whirlwind when it comes back. Because when the wrath of God is applied, remember he's slow to anger, but when the wrath of God is applied, it's been building up in, in energy and in power uh, that uh, the, when the blast does hit you, it is uh, not a good thing. Because he gave you time to repent. He gave you time to recover. Mocking the poor reflects a maladjusted perspective to God and His grace. You know, if you somehow think that you're better than them because you've got more money than them, uh, you've abandoned principles of grace. Why do you think you're so special? You're not. Why do you think they're not? They're not, okay? Let's, Let's recognize that God and His grace is assigning everything, and we need to identify that. It is a fundamental failure to identify the creature's relative position and placement on a spectrum from the richest to the poorest. And so we're all on that spectrum. We're all on that, that financial spectrum. And everyone here in this room is, is on that spectrum somewhere, right? And so from the riches of us to the poorest of us, and however we fall on that relative scale, it's still a relative scale. It is a spectrum. And in the, in the light of God's glory and grace, it's nothing. That uh, we're all puny creatures that are 100% dependent upon the grace of our God for, uh, for every, every moment of every day. And I think uh, in Deuteronomy 15, when uh, when the Lord made that very clear to Israel, He said, look, you're going to be gracious to the poor, you're going to be gracious to the slave, because you too were a slave of the land of Egypt. And the, that graciousness there should be instilled in all of us. As sinners saved by grace, we should be very gracious towards everybody on this planet, because God has been so gracious with us. And, uh, and that's the application there. In Matthew 18, you get the... the uh, perspective of the tax collector and the Pharisee when they go into the temple to pray. And then one guy was just full of himself, how great he was, right? Singing his own praises. And uh, of course the tax collector was not willing to even lift up his eyes to heaven, but understood his unworthiness and the, the grace of God in his life. The sovereign, wise, and perfect plan of God selected the temporal circumstances for everything. Selects the temporal circumstances for an individual, for a marriage, for a family, for a community, and for a nation. Every step of the way is in God's sovereignty as a part of His plan. And that includes the economic circumstances that a family is in, that a, that a nation is in, that an individual is in, and so forth. And so mocking the poor is a taunt against the sovereign, wise, and perfect plan of God. In other words, God has each one of us where He wants us. So if we're going to mock somebody else for being where God put them, for being where God wants them, either His directive will, His permissive will, or His overruling will has put them there. And that's true for your financial circumstances, that's true for your health circumstances, that's true for your personal relationships, that's true for everything that, uh, that is going on. See, don't forget, we ended verse six, uh, chapter 16 with verse 33, that says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. If every flip of a coin is subject to the sovereignty of God, then everything is. What is not subject to the sovereignty of God? 
What is it that happens apart from his direction or his permission? The answer is nothing. Everything happens either as a part of his directive will or his permissive will. He either sovereignly calls for it to happen or he sovereignly permits it to happen. And so these things become a blessing for us. See, not to become Calvinistic or fatalistic or to just throw up our hands and get lazy about everything being rigidly determined. Uh, We're still volitional beings participating in God's volitional plan. All right. So let's not lose sight of the fact that God has put us exactly where He wants us. Uh, Day by day, every day is His sovereignty. That's uh, Psalm 139 and verse 16. I know we did this last week, but I want to see them again. Psalm 139, each individual day, each individual day is a gift of God's grace. Don't earn it, don't deserve it, but they're numbered before there's even one of them. And uh, most of us have had more than one. (laughs) Okay? Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And this is where we get the doctrine of X number of days and the decree that goes forth. And I accept that we all have X number of days. I think we also have Y number of days and Z number of days. The Father has built in contingencies for lengthening our days in blessing or shortening our days in judgment. And all of that is a part of His plan as well. Part of His ordained plan. His decreed plan. So if each individual day is a part of His plan, we also have the whole course of our life that's a plan. And that's Acts 13 when it says that David, after he accomplished the purpose of God in his generation, and so take that as a pattern and ask, well, can I put my name in there? Of course. Except you're not dead yet. So put somebody else's name in there that is dead. They have finished the course, the purpose of God in their generation. Acts 13, 36. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. So if you think about it, it's like, um, you know, are you getting a a Best Actor Award for an individual performance? Or are you getting a Lifetime Achievement Award for the totality of uh, of everything that, that you've done? And the answer is both. Actually, each day is a gift of God's grace, but then the totality of your entire life, from the the day you're conceived to the day you're born to the day you're born again to the day you die, every day has been decreed. And when the life purpose is complete, why would God keep you here? This is a hostile place. (laughs) And if you've accomplished everything He has for you to accomplish here, there's no reason to stay here. If we're saved unto good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, and then we've done them, we've done them all, then that's called the finish line. That's called running with endurance the race that's set before us. And when we have finished our race, then it's time to stand before the Lord and, uh, and uh, answer for the grace that He supplied to us. So, <clears throat> so I like both. Psalm 139 and Acts 13. I think that spells it out very well. You can see communities and nations also involved in Acts 17.26. Uh, when is a nation birthed? When is a nation uh, die? You know, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon or, or whatever you would like to read. What about the rise and fall of the United States of America? Who's going to write that? And uh, well, whenever America falls, someone will probably want to write something like that to try to explain it. 
And there you have it. God's in charge of that every step of the way. So mocking the poor is a taunt against the sovereign, wise, and perfect plan of God. Since he's the one that, that has assigned these things, why would I want to taunt him? We need to be humble and recognize that we are recipients of God's grace. All right. <clears throat> I don't remember Jeremiah 9. How could I have forgotten this? It was just last week. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches. So what if you got more money than the next guy? There's a guy over here that's got more money than you. You know, if you're just going to taunt against a fellow, you know, the next guy, why'd you pick him instead of the guy richer than you? Because the guy richer than you can be taunting you. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That's what we need to boast in, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. We need to boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 4. I think we recognize those things as well. All right. These financial principles apply equally to our placement in the relative health spectrum. So uh, don't get boastful about that. If you're in good health, marvelous. And, uh, but don't brag over somebody else that's not. See, we get this, it's a, it's a human way of thinking. It's a carnal way of thinking. Part of those elementary principles of this fallen cosmos that uh, people convince themselves that they must be better people because God is blessing them with better health. Or that uh, somebody else in poor health, they must, they must have some kind of sin thing that God is exposing or that God is judging. And, and then you end up like Job's accusers and uh, thinking that clearly, well, you know, they just, yeah, they're reaping what they've sown because, uh, you know, in their younger years, they sure, you know, damage their bodies with sin and whatever else. And, and well, wait a minute, we're all sinners. Why are you so prideful against this next guy? And uh, if, uh, if you're not presently being health tested, you will at some point, all of us will, we're all mortal, we're all fallen bodies in a fallen world. So the health spectrum, the educational spectrum, you know, if you got letters after your name, does that make you a better person? Why did, uh, why did God put you through those programs? And why did He equip you with that education? What does He expect you to do with that particular training? And uh, if God put you, th- or did you put yourself through that in defiance of what God would have you do? Maybe God's not at all impressed with, with the letters after your name because God had a plan for you to do these other things and you've been totally in rebellion, not in the will of God. So the relative educational spectrum, the relative beauty spectrum, and of course, pretty people think that ugly people, uh, (laughs) I'm going to get in trouble, let me let that go. But there's all relative spectrums of everything, see. And since we're creatures, let's not be arrogant against one another, you know, like that horrible slave that was forgiven $20 billion and then went and started choking out his his buddy for, you know, 50 bucks or whatever the ratio was there, that he was just so, uh, the, the illustration being that he had been forgiven so much and he had no grace to his, to his fellow slave. That's, uh, that's a rebuke for all of us. All right, rejoicing in calamity. And this kind of carries the logic a point further, beyond poverty, to mock the poor 
All right, now the, the, the neighbor could still be poor and yet not in calamity. He could be poor but, but doing okay and, and muddling along all right and, and so forth. But now when you get to the point of calamity, that's a step even beyond. And now here's a guy that's in real trouble. And whatever else is going on, uh, he's under calamity of, of any sort, then not specific. But whatever that calamity is, something terrible happens in your neighbor's life. And to celebrate that, to be thrilled with that. Yes, that's just darkness. That is carnality being on display. And it came from your heart because there was something in your thinking that sparked that, that response. Why do you find the things funny that you find funny? Okay, we all have different senses of humor. And what shapes those senses of humor? And what do we find funny? What do we find sad? What do we find joyous? What do we find um, celebratable? Is that a word? Um, to, you know, why would I want to celebrate that? You know, don't, is it just a carnal part of me that says, good, they finally, they got it coming to them. You know, took them long enough. You know, it should have been worse than it was. Why wasn't it worse than that? And, and to get a sense of joy, to, to be exuberant over, uh, over calamity. It's, it's not something to rejoice over. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry, right? And don't mix those up. <laughs> There's a time for rejoicing and calamity is not it. We're supposed to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And so uh, we've got a reflection here of a maladjusted perspective to God and His judgment. You know, if God brought it about, He either directed it or permitted it, so let's just get to God's purpose. If He directed it, it was for His purpose. If He permitted it, it's also for His purpose, right? Right? Everything God directs is for His purpose. So too, everything He permits. Don't ever lose sight of that. When Satan afflicted Job, well, Satan had purposes for that, right? Satan had a purpose for afflicting Job. Do you remember what Satan's purpose was? I'm going to quiz you here this morning. What was Satan's purpose for afflicting Job? He wanted Job to curse God. In fact, Mrs. Job said, curse God and die. And I think she was voicing the, the temptation from Satan right there. Curse God and die. And so he wants, and, and Satan even bet God. He said, I bet you he's going to curse you. He's only serving you because you bless him. And so Satan had a purpose. Satan's purpose was for Job to curse God. That was Satan's purpose. Did God have the same purpose? Here's the thing. When God permits something to happen in your life, the dumbest question in the world is why does this always happen to me? Or why is this happening? Or why do you allow this? Okay? And the reason why it's dumb is because we're not entitled for God to explain Himself. And, and what we're really saying in our lack of faith when we're demanding why does this happen to me, what we're saying is it should not be happening to me. I disagree. This is wrong. I, I deserve better than this. And so when we say why is this happening to me, we're throwing ourselves in the in, in judgment over God saying, uh, I'm right, you're wrong, this is, you, you shouldn't have chosen for this to happen. But now when God does permit something to happen, when He permitted Satan to afflict Job, or when He permitted anything that He permits in permissive will, when He permits it, He doesn't have the same purpose that the person who's doing the affliction had, right? So Satan had a purpose for afflicting Job, when God permits it, it's not because he shares the same purpose. Far from it. Usually he's got a completely different purpose. 
Satan wants it for Job's fall. God wants it for Job's approval. He wants it for Job's building up. He wants it to teach Satan a lesson, to teach the fallen angels a lesson. He wants to write a book of the Bible and have it in the Old Testament. (laughs) So he permits Satan to afflict Job. Whatever his reasons are, and even by the end of the book, Job never gets the answer why. He finally repents and says, I don't need to know why. God has his reasons. And God's reasons are morally sufficient to satisfy God's own integrity, God's own character. If, uh, if I don't understand it, or if I disagree, or if I think that his reasons are wrong, that he doesn't satisfy my moral character, well then I'm a fault finder and an accuser and I'm putting myself in God's standard of righteousness. See, these are bigger issues. I told you that last week. These are bigger issues than we sometimes give it credit for. So God has a purpose. And I don't want to have a maladjusted perspective to God and His judgment. If the calamity is there as a judgment function of the justice of God, then I'm not going to celebrate that. I'm not going to celebrate that because God's not celebrating that. He takes no pleasure in it. What He takes pleasure in is when the discipline produces repentance. That gives Him pleasure. So let's look at some of these things. I think it's a fundamental failure to identify God's non-rejoicing, non-pleasure to inflict such calamity. All right. And uh, what all these verses tell us in Exodus 34, 6 and every passage afterwards, what do these passages all say? Let's read these and see if you can detect a common theme. We'll see if you're paying attention this morning. Exodus 34 and verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Slow to anger. We got any procrastinators here in the room? Okay. I got to raise both hands. I'm the biggest one here. All right. And uh, why do we procrastinate? For different reasons. You know, laziness is one of them. But ultimately... If it was something you really, really wanted to do, you would have done it by now. Procrastination off, often is a reflection of something you don't want to do. You just got other priorities, other things you want to do more. See? So you put it off because you know it needs to be done. You just don't want to do it. So tomorrow's better than today. Because really, if the trumpet sounds tonight, then I won't ever have to do it. So let's just put it off. Okay? And in a sense, in a very sanctified way, God is similar because He delays His anger, He delays His judgment, He delays His wrath. And if that sinner repents in the, men, in the meantime, what does that mean God doesn't have to do? He doesn't have to apply the wrath. He can then apply His forgiveness, He can apply His grace, which is what He wanted to do all along. All right, so uh, we have it there in Exodus 34, 6. Well, maybe I'm making a big deal out of one verse. Is that the only place this comes up? How about Numbers 14? And um, 12 spies uh, go in and 10 spies are terrified so they outvote the other two spies and then they want to fire Moses and they want to go back to Egypt. And so Moses has to pray for these rebels. And when he prays, he prays to the Lord and he reminds the Lord of what the Lord himself said in Exodus 34, 6. 
So um, Numbers 14, 17, but now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation. So slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. And Moses used the very words of the Lord in his prayer to tell the Lord what he couldn't do. He said, you can't destroy the Jewish nation. How about Nehemiah 9.17? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Nehemiah 9.17. Giving a walk through the Bible here and, and as this is being recited. And um, talking about the Exodus, talking about the Red Sea, <clears throat> Mount Sinai, the golden calf, the water from the rock, all these things. They, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. Slow to anger. Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 86, 15. Verse 14 says, O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So this was a principle that shaped David's prayer life. So it shapes Moses' prayer life, it shapes Nehemiah's prayer life, it shapes David's prayer life. They keep coming back to this, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. Psalm 103 in verse 8. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. See, God's in charge. Why are you celebrating? For all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. All right. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. <laughs> you know, 
here we are rejoicing that so-and-so got his uh, whatnot, and we're thinking, finally. And, and then we complain that why wasn't it more? David says, you know what? God is so gracious, he actually gave him less than he deserved. He gave him a sufficient amount to uh, spark his repentance, gave him a sufficient amount to teach him what he needs to learn in the oppression, and he's not enjoying it. He's not delighting in the discipline. He's accomplishing it in righteousness, not in, uh, in uh, joy. And he's waiting to forgive. He's absolutely waiting to forgive. As soon as the, as soon as the repentance happens, he can turn off the judgment function and, and start restoring him. So he's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He's not, he's not enjoying the discipline. He's not getting a little charge. Like, did, do you get a thrill when you're spanking your children? Are you kidding me? Is it, is it fun to, to swat the little backside and when they start crying you think, yeah, you know, let me make them cry some more. Yeah, you know. No, there's no joy in that. Why would God get joy out of the affliction He assigns for our repentance? He knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Psalm 145 in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and His mercies are over all His works. Your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. So why would I be celebrating His wrath when He Himself is not? Joel 2 and verse 13. All these verses are basically saying the same thing. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Have you caught on to that? There's a common thread through all these verses. You've been paying attention? Daniel, Hosea, Joel. And uh, all right, Joel. Here's a great prophet. Here's wrath and judgment. Here's uh, scorpions. Here's um, they rush on the city. They run on the wall. Before them the uh, earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness. Aha! Here's a great passage of wrath. They're really going to get it. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. Strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yeah, kill them all. Wait a minute. (laughs) Is Is that the purpose? Is He really going forth to exterminate humanity? What's he doing? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. Why? Well, you might have heard this. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Wow. (laughs) Wow. It shaped uh, 
Moses' prayer life, David's prayer life, it's shaped Nehemiah, it's shaping Joel. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And there's more there too. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. When he brings Israel through the tribulation, what's next? He's going to hand them the kingdom. He's going to bring the believers into that kingdom. So gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Go ahead and empty out the nursery. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chambers. Okay, There's more things to celebrate besides your wedding night. We're going to celebrate the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. For Jonah, um, everything that we keep reading here, uh, which we think is great, Jonah didn't like it. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And he says, I told you so. It displeased Jonah and became angry. See, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah and became angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? I told you so. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Here we go rejoicing at calamity and God just wants to relent. He wants to apply grace when the sinner repents. And so as far as Jonah's concerned, it's might as well just drop dead. Why, why, why even stay alive anymore? If you, if you can't watch a good Assyrian massacre, then what's, what's worth living? Let's just die. That's of course insane, but that's where he is. And then Nahum. Here's Nahum. 150 years later, giving the message he didn't want to give. He had, the, he had the opposite attitude from Jonah. He wanted them to repent and uh, had to preach their destruction. And jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. All right, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different times that God repeats himself by saying that he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He said it nine different times. That gets my attention. I I better not lose sight of something that God repeats nine different times. It is a fundamental failure to identify God's non-rejoicing, non-pleasure. Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33 both say that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked should repent. Ezekiel 18, 32. And this goes so well with Proverbs 17. Verse 31 says, or verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God, Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? 
For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. He's not taking pleasure in the calamity. Why am I rejoicing in the calamity? Ezekiel 33, 11. Verse 10 says, Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens. All right, so Ezekiel's got a message to deliver. So rejoicing in calamity reflects a maladjusted perspective to God and his judgment. Let's move on to verse 6 of Proverbs 17. There's a dynamic across three generations. There's a dynamic across three generations which highlights the progression from fatherhood to sonship to fatherhood. This is being expressed here. And I don't know um, how this is going to be changed. I heard the other day that um, the Lockman Foundation is going to publish an update to the New American Standard Bible. And I don't know all the details about it, but um, what I was told is that they're going to adjust the gender language in many of these passages. So uh, we're looking at here, grandchildren are the crown of old men. And that's going to get changed to old men and old women, I guess. Uh, the glory of sons and daughters is in their fathers and mothers. That there's a, there's a sense that they, they're going to try to replace terms like brethren with brothers and sisters so that girls don't feel left out uh, by the term brethren. Even though we know that when we're addressing the brethren, brethren is a collective plural for both brothers and sisters. It's a nice abbreviated expression. Instead of saying brothers and sisters, you can say brethren, and it includes both. And, uh, you know, it's been the English language for hundreds of years. But apparently, so I don't know what they're going to do with this verse. Grandchildren are the crown of old men and old women. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Let's start singing a Randy Travis song here next. What's that? Elderly. Okay, so the Holman's done some of that too then. All right. And the glory of sons is their fathers. We actually have three generations there. Because we got the grandchildren, or the grandparents, the parents, and the children. And... Um, There's a dynamic with respect to this, and I think it's interesting. And so there are uh, things to celebrate. In other words, a crown is something you uh, that you wear as a display of glory, as a as a uh, item of praise, and uh, and that's kind of the the joy of the reward. Somebody said the the grandchildren are the reward for not killing your children, something like that. That uh, that you you. if you put up with and endure and, and so forth, and then eventually you do get grandchildren, which is the payoff. And then you watch your grandchildren put your kids through what they put you through, which is more of a payoff. And, uh, and it's all how it works. That's exactly how it works. 
My dad was a moron, a blithering idiot because I was arrogant and I was, I was horrible um, as a teenager. And uh, overnight, uh, my dad became the, the most genius man to ever walk this earth. And it happened when, when Bob was born. <laughs> it happened when I became a father. And then that first child is, comes home and wow, now what? Right? And overnight, my mom and dad became, well, my mom was always brilliant, but my dad became a genius from that point on. Anyway, um, so we have these generations. And this is seen in, uh, in some different ways. And I, I want to stress this. The, um, the early chapters of Genesis portray the generations and their corporate blessing to call upon the Lord. And I think this is, uh, this is useful as well. It's not just family affection that's common to the human experience. The terms that are used in Proverbs are terms of, of crowns and glories. You've got to have a divine viewpoint uh, to, to fully appreciate crowns and glories. If the grandchildren are the crown of the elderly and the glory of sons is in their fathers, why is the glory of sons in their fathers? Why are they praising, that's what glory is, why are they praising God for their parents and grandparents? Well, biblically speaking, I think it comes down to beyond the earthly family, it comes down to our heavenly family. And there's something being modeled in this, or it's supposed to be, unless the family is dysfunctional. All right, so Genesis 4, you'll see what I'm talking about here. The Toledoth generations of Adam. Remember, Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, and that's before they were sinners. Children are not a curse, okay? Uh, God designed us to be fruitful and multiply. Children are a blessing. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Um, They failed to reap that blessing until after they became sinners. And so ever since then, sinners have beget sinners, and that's the way it works. And then uh, some of those sinner children, uh, one of them murdered another one of them. And uh, we have the the ugly chapter here with that. But then... um, in verse 25, at the end of the chapter, and my idea, yeah, I think, is that uh, Adam and Eve are adult sons, that when, or Cain and Abel, I'm sorry, are adult sons. When Cain murders Abel, they're the professional men, a farmer and a, and a, and a, a, a herdsman. And, and when he flees, he's got a wife and children. He's, he's going he's gonna, to uh, produce children in the place where he flees to. They're not little kids, is what I'm saying. They're grown. And Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. We know uh, if you peek ahead to um, chapter 5, you're going to notice this, that he had other sons and daughters. That's five, uh, Genesis 5-4. The days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And I think Seth was the last one born. I think Seth was born after a period of time that they weren't having children. Because um, after Cain murders Abel, it says in verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And I think the appointment of one final son is significant, that it's an additional son. It's a son of surprise or a son of blessing after Eve had already had all of her other children. 
See, it's, it's highlighted as being different. In other words, it's not just normal marital life. It's not just that, well, okay, Seth was the next one on the list, and then you know the next one after that, and the next one after that. When you live 900 years, you can have a lot of children, all right? And uh, however else that works, uh, you know, if it's proportionate to today, you know, we, we get about a century or less, and uh, women are, what, from 15 to 45 or thereabouts. You get about 30 years of, of childbearing years, and uh, plus or minus. And uh, so if that's, if that's a ratio, 30 years out of 100, now multiply that times 9 or 10, and, uh, and how many babies could these women have been having over that length of time? Anyway, so uh, to Seth, now notice, then to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And now notice, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, there is something extraordinary about that statement, and, and I wish Moses would have expanded upon it, but he didn't. That's how he closes chapter 4, and then he gives the genealogies of chapter 5. But it, it's undeniable that it's with the third generation then, when we have a father and a son, and then a son who has become a father by having a, now a third generation, having a father, a son, and a son who has become a father, that is the, is the realm in which corporate worship happens on this generational basis upon which the transgenerational worship really has its fullness. Not saying that Adam and Eve couldn't call upon the Lord before this or that Adam and Seth couldn't call upon the Lord before this. Clearly Abel called upon the Lord. Abel was a man of faith. And so uh, with, with Adam and Eve getting saved, with Abel getting saved, uh, why, why couldn't Adam and Abel have, uh, have this kind of uh, worship? Why did it take a third generation for men to begin to call upon the name of the Lord? See? And this is what I think is, is key. I think because this now transcends, this takes the family relationship out of the, um, out of the illustration and it brings it into the, into the reality of our family in, in God, our family in Christ. So that that um, you got grandparents who raise the children, and then you have the next generation that should be raising the children. Does it become a problem if the grandparents butt in and tell the tell the parents how to parent? Say, so, yeah, it does. It becomes a huge problem. Say, so back off there, because we left father and mother to cleave to one another. The two become one flesh, and it's a new marriage relationship now. And they are the ones accountable to raise those kids either better than you did or worse than you did, but that's on them, okay? And so ideally, the, so now what happens? Do we tell the, the, the grandparents, you know, take a hike, go away, don't talk to us anymore? No, clearly not. There is now becomes a dynamic with three generations whereby we can have spiritual family life together as brothers. We can have spiritual life together as sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. In which case, my father and my grandfather are both my brothers. My mother and my grandmother are both my sisters. And when we're calling upon the Lord, we can do so in a cross, what did I say, transgenerational worship experience that celebrates the plan of God in, in, in ways that angels can't do. Angels don't have generations. They don't have sons and grandsons. But we do. And we have this as a, as a remarkable blessing. 
You know, the God of Abraham became the God of Abraham and Isaac. Then he became the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a generational pattern for a thousand generations to remember. In a generational pattern for a thousand generations to remember. And this is, uh, I think this is marvelous. When, when the wrath of God comes to the third and to the fourth generation, why is that? Why is that the pattern? What is it about the third generation that's like the last chance? And then in the fourth generation then, when judgment falls upon the wicked. Why is that? What is the be- value of three generations? Well, when you have three generations of believers, that can be a powerful thing. I find that interesting as well. Even in my own family, uh, Grandpa Ralph was a total pagan, and uh, <laughs> so they weren't saved. Uh, he kind of rebelled against the Mormonism of his father, and so he was just a, a pagan. And then Grandma divorced him, and and then remarried, and but they weren't church people or religious at all, and uh, and so my dad is just a little pagan kid playing in his front yard on a Sunday morning, and then uh, a little old lady, a little I think of her as a little old Ethel Dowd kind of lady, was walking down the street, and asked this uh, delinquent in the front yard of his house why he wasn't in Sunday school. You know, my dad was like, "What's Sunday school? What's that?" You know, and. And so she asked permission. She went and knocked on the door and asked my grandmother, you know, can I take little Bobby to, to Sunday school? And, and she did. And uh, my dad got saved. And um, so anyway, you got a pattern there. He became generation one, so to speak. And sometimes that's a rough road. But then generation two has an easier time with it. Why? Because they get brought up in this. They get grounded in the Word of God. And then generation three what a joy do you have there? Because they also get grounded in the Word of God, but then they have parents and grandparents to, to worship with, to call upon the name of the Lord together with. And when all three generations are coming uh, before the Lord that way, what a, what a joy. All right, well, you can find these verses yourself. Um, Genesis 26, 24, where he's called the God of Abraham. Genesis 28, 13, and 32, 9 where he's called the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And then uh, when he's called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4, we end up with a generational pattern for a thousand generations to remember. Let me grab these Exodus references. So in Exodus 2... Moses has to flee to Midian and uh, he's, he's living out there with his father-in-law and um, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help <clears throat> because of the bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three generations The covenant was reconfirmed to Isaac, not Ishmael, reconfirmed to Jacob, not Esau, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those generations of believers who the covenant is with. And then he's called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Genesis 3, 6 says, remove your sandals from your feet. The place in which you're standing is holy ground. 
He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Your father, Abraham. How many generations back was Abraham from Moses? And yet, Abraham is his father. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Down to verse uh, 15 and 16. Moses said, well, I'm going to the sons of Israel. I will say to them that the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They may say, what is his name? And this is where he gets the I am significance. I am that I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And he teaches them that I am is the memorial name for Yahweh. And uh, the significance of Yahweh is the I am reality. So thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Leviticus 26.42 Even when uh, God has discipline upon a nation you know there's cycles of discipline and you go through either five or six of these cycles depending on how you break down the verses and then if a nation does not repent in that final cycle it's removed, removed from human history, destroyed as uh, were you know, all the nations that have been destroyed, the Romans and the Greeks and the Assyrians and Babylonians, they all went through the cycles of discipline. They were all removed from human history. One nation, though, has an eternal future. One nation is guaranteed. And so um, in verse 42, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well. I will remember the land and he will restore them. There's a promise there. Psalm 105. The great psalm that addresses the fullness of time dispensation. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he's commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. And so there it is. Where's the church in any of that? Nowhere. Nowhere. You see, God the Father is a demonstrator for God the Son. We've got a pattern here. And God exhibits that pattern. And it's played out in humanity. Angels can't play this out. God the Father is a demonstrator for God the Son. What is it that the Son learns? What is it that the Son sees the Father doing? The Son watches His Father uh, drunk all the time and beating the tar out of uh, His mother. What kind of boy is that going to be growing up? What kind of impact does that have on a son when he watches uh, a brutal, drunk, angry man? Okay, Or a man that's absent, he's just gone all the time. What kind of son grows up without a, without a father? But what kind of son grows up with a father that's humble before the Word of God and in church? I tell you, some of my best childhood memories are, are dad, mom, Elizabeth, Matt, Mary, me. I was always on the end because I was the oldest. And then kind of thought, yeah, because I can, you know, not fall asleep or cause trouble or embarrass mom and dad. Because if you embarrass mom and dad, that's, that's horrible. And all of us are singing on a Sunday morning. That's where I learned how to sing out of the hymn book, learned how to read music. 
and uh, listening to uh, to uh, my dad sing, listening to my mother sing. There's a demonstration that happens there. All right, John five. The father loves the son. Back up to verse nineteen. See, they wanted to kill him because he was making himself out to be equal with God. So Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. This is how God the Father and God the Son eternally functioned. The Father would direct, the Father would explain, and the Son would make it happen. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him, demonstrates. See, the Father, God's a God of show and tell. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. Remember, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. What do you th- how do you think Jesus got that idea about being the mediator between God and man? The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. What's greater than first advent? Second advent. What's greater than second advent? New heavens, new earth. How about when the son becomes a father? The ultimate outworking of this is the fatherhood of Jesus Christ. See, if the father doesn't show the son how to be a father, then he's not, he's, he's falling down on his duties. He's got to teach his son how to be a father which means you're leading your family in spiritual things, which means you're, uh, you make the Word of God a priority. You, uh, you expect that your wife and your children are going to be under teaching and you hold yourself to the same standard you hold them to because you keep yourself under teaching constantly. And you're not a tyrant and you're not brutal. All right. So the ultimate outworking of this is the fatherhood of Jesus Christ. And this is how we get explained, how he's the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, eternal father. Why is he called eternal father? Why is he promised children in Isaiah 53.10? He will see his offspring. That's the offspring of the sheep that's going to the slaughter. He's going to the slaughter silently, and yet he will see his offspring. In Revelation 21.7, I will be their God and they will be my children. See, the thousand generations in the fullness of time are not children of God the Father, they're children of Jesus Christ. That's a huge difference. Hope we get that. If you give the gospel today, I'm going to leave here in a minute, we're going to close in prayer, and uh, wherever you go from here, you, you go somewhere, you meet an unbeliever, you give them the gospel, they get saved, they become a child of God the Father like you and I are children of God the Father by faith in Jesus Christ. They become brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. They become part of the bride of Christ. For a thousand generations in the fullness of time, they are sons of Jesus Christ. We make them grandchildren, I guess, in a sense, of God the Father. All right. Of course, Jesus isn't having any children yet. He hasn't married his bride yet. Come on, keep these things in order. Call me old-fashioned, but I believe the wedding comes first. And then the children. Jesus will have children after he marries the bride of Christ. Uh, Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for these blessings. Thank you for being faithful, Father. Bless, Continue to bless our studies. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.